What happens when your worst fear becomes your reality? Hi, I'm Brent Cassidy. Welcome to the Nightmare Success In and Out podcast, where we explore how to overcome your fears and nightmares and set yourself free. We're going to be exploring this topic with guys that was in Leavenworth with and others who survived their own nightmare. These stories can be inspiring, sometimes sad. There's some humor, but hopefully you can come away with a nugget of something that'll help you knock down some of the prisons you built up in your own mind. All right. Welcome back. Nightmare Success in and Out listeners, where you come to hear what happens when your worst fear becomes your reality. How do you adapt, survive, overcome, set yourself free? And don't forget, it's a big deal if you guys follow, subscribe, like, comment. It's huge for the show. Well, I have an unbelievable, fascinating, gritty, inspiring story. I think I got all the right words in there because I, I have done over a hundred of these interviews. I haven't run across this story. This story is something that I'm going to read from the guardian here because I think it's, it's an incredible story and written about my guest. It says that morning, Hicklin had finally been set free from Potosi correctional center, a men's maximum security prison in Missouri an anonymous teenager, when she entered, Hicklin was leaving a 42-year-old superstar, a title given to her by the deputy warden, Jody Glore, who noted her ability to change the Missouri Department of Corrections from the inside out. After 26 years behind bars, Hicklin was leaving prison as the first transgender inmate in Missouri to have successfully sued for the right to access hormones. She was also leaving behind a legacy, Unlocked Labs, which I can't wait to talk about because that's what she's doing now. She's, a both, she's the co-founder and CTO of Unlocked Labs, which is just an incredible organization. And that organization, which aids prisoners to continue their education in prison and get better jobs when they get out. But notwithstanding all the good she has done, she was still re-entering society as a convicted murderer. I think it sounds like I just read a trailer to a movie that you're going to go uh, sit in at a movie theater. It's, it's that powerful. Her story's that powerful. I've read so many different things about Jessica, and she's brilliant, first of all. I mean, I think she was going to college when she was 16 years old. Before we unpack all that, of course, I want to recognize our show sponsor, Autoplaz Direct. You know, who likes spending a couple of weeks or weekends, walking car lots, looking for a car. Then you spend four to five hours in the dealership to buy a car. It's like making a root canal appointment to the dentist. Well, there's a better way to take away all the pain and hassle of getting a car. It's called Autoplaza Direct. They are your personal car concierge. Just tell them the car you want, what you can pay, and they'll go find that car for you. They'll negotiate your best price. They also offer you warranties and financing, full service. It's all full service. Go to autoplazdirect.com to get started with your personal car concierge. The new hassle-free way, the car buying experience you deserve. Autoplaza Direct. Tell them Brent from Nightmare Success sent you. Jessica, can you yes. hear me? <laughs> I, can, I can hear you. So for all of you that don't know, because you wouldn't have known this, we did this yesterday. And Brent Cassidy gets going, and I just did all the things I just did. 
and I introduce Jessica and I can't hear her. And one of the things that's really dangerous that I have is this sound mixing board, which I don't push a lot of buttons on there because I know that I shouldn't. <laughs> Yesterday I accidentally pushed one and it was the one that knocked out Jessica's audio. And we spent, what did we spend Jessica? 45 minutes trying to figure it out because you're the, you know, kind of the tech guru and I was the one that messed <laughs> it up. I hit the button. <laughs> regardless yeah. jessica hi thank you for hi. doing this again <laughs> <laughs> yeah well maybe we'll get it right this time we'll get it right this time or we'll get we're, we we can hear each other this time whether we get it right i don't know but um jessica i you've been out of prison for two years um yeah. i know you've 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 gone around you've you've spoke to a lot of different people about your life and, and what you're doing with unlocked labs and raising money and doing great things. But in saying all that, it hasn't been easy for you. And going back to the, the hardships that you had growing up as a kid, can you kind of introduce the listeners to what you were living through as a kid? Because when I was reading this, I was like, Oh my gosh, where are the adults in the room? Who's helping this person? I think we should probably give a trigger warning if I'm going to discuss it too much. But uh, yeah, I, I, I grew up in, in a very abusive situation. It's like many of us in uh, this country and throughout the world and, you know, broken home and um, a physically, sexually, emotionally abusive uh, father and stepmother, uh, mom who just didn't have the tools because she came from that same background herself. So really like, unfortunately, very common, you know, generational abuse. Uh, I came everywhere on all parts of my family. That's how we grew up. In fact, before this conversation here, I was just talking with my brother who 25, 30 years later is just now trying to do his work because of the things that we grew up and things we witnessed. You know, as, as kids that go through that type of abuse, Jessica, is it, how did the siblings react or, or help each other through those type of hard moments? Mm. It's well, so I have, I had three siblings. I had a older sister. Well, I have an older sister. It's about six years older. An older brother is about two years older. And you, I had a stepbrother who took his life uh, some years back um, because of not being able to handle what we grew up watching. But you know, there's, there's two, two phases. There's the one where you all band together to try and save and protect each other. You know, my brother got a lot of, a lot of physical abuse because he would try and take the beatings for his siblings. And my sister would be there. Um, similarly. So we all kind of took our turns trying to defend mm. the others. And, um, eventually my sister, you know, was able to get out and we, my brother and I ended up with my mom. Um, who just wasn't capable and her and her husband at the time was also abusive. So, you know, you, you, you try to, it was just other. a trade off. Yeah. Try to defend each other. And then you end up trying to save each other's lives in some instances and you just hope you survive. Well, and it seems like that from how this happened, that there were a couple of different things as an early age, you know, nine, 10, 11 years old that you were looking for an escape. And, and, and one of the escapes was drugs Mm, um, so. so 
what, in your mind, and if you can remember really as a kid, what, what happened in your mind going through that time period? Yeah, uh, there's a couple couple very distinct memories actually. The the one is I grew up in a in a house of substance abuse. You know, my my mom was as much as I loved her, she was an alcoholic, and so was my stepdad. And my stepmom was um, because that whole side of family's medical was a pharmaceutical drug abuser, and my dad was the only one who wasn't, but um, should have been psychiatrically medicated. So I grew up with it. This is grew up seeing that this is how you deal with your problems is you medicate them. Um, and then I also, you know, was exposed to drinking and, and actually was drinking from the, before I was a teenager. Um, because that's, again, my family said, this is how we do things. Mm -hmm. And it's one of those things that just grows, right? Like you, if this feels a little good, uh, if this makes it feel a little better than a lot more, make it feel a lot better. And of right, course that's right. not how it happens, but that's, and, and one of the other things that stands out is it wasn't my first choice, right? Uh, there's plenty of uh, family services records that shows that we went for help. And, you know, in Kansas, um, our case was my dad's case and the abuse was referred to family services. And because my dad was on the family services board, they referred the case right back to him and made him responsible for his own family. Mm. And so you know, we tried to get help. We tried to be heard. Um, when that didn't happen, the only, you know, when you scream loud enough and nobody cares, then you go inwards. And it had to be so frustrating, Jessica, to, to try to be doing the right thing. And as mm -hmm. kids to try to get that in front of the people who you think are responsible and they just turn mm -hmm. it back and yeah. there you are. They tell you, keep it quiet. And, you know, you referenced uh, the fact that I was in college and that's just it. I was, from the time I was young, I grew up watching Doogie Howser for those of us that are old enough to remember Doogie <laughs> Howser. And that's where I wanted to be. That was, yeah. that was my, and I dedicated myself to doing that. Um, I just wanted to live the right life, a good life. And I just couldn't. Well, and I think it's so incredible though, Jessica, that usually people that are going through what you went through, uh, that's where their, they, their grades suffer. They're, they're flunking out of school where is that was something that you really excelled at in a, in an environment that wasn't easy to excel with school because you would have had all these other things going on. Uh, it comes from two things. The, the, the one is that was the only place we were safe. Was that yeah. school? Yeah. Because you're away from, you're away from the abusers. And two, uh, there was some, if I have any blessing in my life, I have many blessings in my life actually. And I still tell people this day, I've had a great life, but um, I've had the blessing of good people in my world. And at the time I had teachers that cared about, about me, about my success. And, and actually, the last year I was in high school, um, the principal I tried to call a truancy officer on me. My grades went down to Fs and Ds because it reached a limit. And yeah. um, they were ready to throw me out of school. But I had a guidance counselor had seen my, uh, when you came into school in Missouri, they give like the entry ACT for freshmen um, just to see what they need to teach you over the next few years. And I had a guidance counselor said, but wait a minute. She got a 28 on her ACT in the, as a freshman. Um, something doesn't add up. Mm -hmm. And it was through the assistance of people like that that helps uh, uh, helped save me in some ways as best as they could. Yeah. Did you, uh, because you talk about this, that you felt like at some point, like 11, 12 years old, that you had, you basically had gone crazy. You had schizophrenia that, that mm. um, were you sharing that with anybody? Was that, were you sharing it with teachers or were you sharing it? Mm. With, Cause you couldn't really share it with your parents cause they were kind of out and, 
Neverland. Uh, that that's a specific reference, though, um, because you know, tied up in all of the abuse and everything else before, like, so there's this thing where, like, oh, it's causative, not so much, but. Um, I, I'm, I'm a transgender woman and I'm sort of stereotypically knew that I you know, didn't know the term, didn't know transgender woman, mm-hmm. knew something wasn't right when I was five or six. And so the schizophrenia reference specifically relates to having that sense of being a woman and going, well, this isn't normal. Like this isn't a thing, uh, especially where I grew up in very small southern Kansas town. I had no reference. And so mm-hmm. my natural conclusion was from the public library and all my research <laughs> and all my training was that I must be schizophrenic. Was it hard for you, Jessica, or did you get any trouble from kids or anything that, that, did you get picked on or was it really just something you kept internally that you were dealing with on your own? Oh, it was internal. I was too afraid to let people know. I yeah. was way too afraid. And honestly, you know, whenever we moved in with my mother and, and um, you know, we had a family friend that um, identified as gay. And so I, I thought I had found an ally there who I could like, have these conversations about uh, with about. He was about 10 years older than me, um, but he ended up using it as a, as a way of uh, sexually assaulting me. Wow. So even the, the, only, the first person I shared it with was the one that became an abuser oh, after my parents. So I guess really, it's so my first. Well, and I think it's also interesting because I, I have a gay brother and, and um, I think it was his freshman year. Yeah, because we were on a vacation trip. It was his, his freshman year in college. And. What was so odd about it, Jessica, was is that I, being he's my brother, he's only three years younger than me. Mm-hmm. It's like we weren't like ten years apart. I didn't pick up on any of that, and yeah. um, you know, it's it's people always say, "Well, you, how could you not know your brother?" What it just, you know, it, but what happened when uh, I found that out? It, it really kind of connected all the dots, you know. That well, I was so frustrated that you know, my why doesn't Tyler want to do what I do? you know, with this and that. And, and then it all kind of made sense. And then we were able to have this totally new understanding, but I think it's so much tougher when you're carrying it all internal. And I was having this conversation with uh, father Joe, who is a gay priest and he was on the show and, and um, we were kind of comparing it to uh, being an ex felon. You know, what do you yeah. do with that? Do you yeah. do you tell people, you know, when you're standing on the sidelines with the other parents or <laughs> or, or you're, you know, yeah, or in, in, in your job or whatever? And you, there's two ways to go with that. Also, you you can say, I don't want to talk about it. I don't want people to know about it. Or you can lead with it. And that's just who you are. And that's who people accept. I just think it's interesting because at a young age, you don't have an ability really to reason through all that. You're just no. dealing with this feeling. You're dealing with the fear of somebody finding out typically, which was you know, my experience at the time. But glad, I'm happy I live the other way now. Yeah. <laughs> That's who I am. Well, and, and so th- as, as things came, got, as you got into your teenage years, Jessica, the, the, uh, the, drug, the drugs continued, but your your also, your life as somebody who was scholarly continued. Mm-hmm. But can you lead us into what happened when it happened for your nightmare? Because it, it sounds like to me that it was, it truly was a nightmare blur. That, mm-hmm. uh, and you were, trying, you were trying to help your mom. And yeah. it, it just is such a, uh, it's one of those like stories. Yeah. Can you kind of lead us into that? Sure. Um, in some context, um, 
a little background context before, like closer to the event, uh, amidst all of the chaos of my family home was a uh, uh, terrible custody battles that actually ended in a armed standoff between my parents and the police making us choose who we wanted to live with. And so I chose to live with my mom. Um, and shortly thereafter, so my dad was battling cancer. What was your age then, Jessica, when you chose um, that, made that um, choice? That's the thing I have a hard time with. I know that I ended up permanently living with my mom when I was 13 after I ran away from okay. with my parents. And so um, I cannot recall when it was, but there's definitely a police report on it. Yeah. <laughs> um, which actively trying to get. Uh, but I, I do know, like, at some point I ended up, well, in January of 93, I ended up living with my 93 or 92. 93, I believe. I ended up living with my mom because my dad died that March or April. Um, he lost his battle to cancer. So um, there was that whole, like, I'm supposed to love my dad, and, but my dad's an abuser. And um, finally, like, so that was emotionally, uh, there was a lot of emotional turmoil. At the same time, I went to live with my mom, who was living in her own abusive relationship. And so it was from, like, out of the frying pan into the fire situation. Uh, and so I leaned even heavier into drinking and drugs as a way of dealing with life. Um, but then we, we ended up. Were your siblings moving. involved in that too? Or was it just you in your world with your people? Of, um, like the drug, the drug world is what I mean. Uh, they all went through their own phases of it. Yeah. You know, um, sister, not as deep at all. Um, she ended up married with a great family still to this day, married to the same husband and they're, you know, super supportive and it really helped her um, find some peace in life. Uh, my brother and I, you know, we, we went through our ups and downs. Um, I went the worst, but you know, we, we, we all struggled because that's, mm-hmm. that's the model we had for dealing with it. Right. Um, so we ended up moving into Missouri um, and I, I ended up in a very strange relationship was somebody was much older than me, but it was, it gave me a sense of like, this is what I want. I want to go to college. I want to build a family. And so I stopped doing drugs for a little while. Um, but because she was so much older than me and had children, um, there was the threat of family services taking her kids away and it split us up. And that was sort of my straw that broke the camel's back. I just like, I saw no hope for my future, even though I was continuing to work my way to college. And so I got heavily back into drugs at that point. This would have been uh, January of 95 around like right around the year that this case happened. And so, you know, I, I was, uh, by the time I was, well, I was an intravenous amphetamine user before that time. So, I mean, I was deep into drugs as a way of coping. Uh, and then we're headed into this, the end of the school year. My counselor contacts the university. We have a conversation. I don't even have a GED at this point because in Missouri, you couldn't drop out of school until you were mm-hmm. 16. Um, but I ended up dropping out my first week. So in March, I ended up dropping out because I could. Um, but there was there was an agreement with the university that when the fall semester came around, I would be able to start my 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 fall term. Um, I was required to take the G, the first available GED, which was two weeks into the semester. Um, and because I didn't have a GED, they wouldn't let me live on campus. So I had to stay at home until second semester of my freshman year in college, um, and I was required to take and pass that GED. So all these things play together. So I'm trapped at home and the situation is terrible. I just want to get out. I see the light of like this career. I actually was signing up to be an actuarial scientist. Um, I wow. calculated, I calculated a career, talked to my advisors. I, you know, I 
math was math and science were my things. That's kind of why I'm a geek now. Um, <laughs> but then my mom comes home one day in September and she hands me this piece of paper. She says, I'm going to jail. What do you mean you're going to jail? And I unfold it. And it's a summons from the prosecuting attorney because my mom has written $2,400 worth of bad checks to the brand new Harris casino. So my mom is going to jail for, you know, bad checks, uh, for, for bad checks. And like many situations in my younger years, I was being asked to be the parent without mm-hmm. to do so. So I, I tried to solve that problem. At first, I tried to take out a, a loan. I have no credit. I'm a 16-year-old kid. 16-year-old kid. <laughs> and, and my mom's credit is bad, so she can't co-sign it. Right. Um, and so when that didn't work, I tried to uh, I tried to take money out of the college fund. So for whatever the terrible situation my father was, he left us all the college fund, which is I was going to pay to go to college. And of course the trustee is not going to release money mm-hmm. for my mom's gambling debts. Right. And so I turned to what I knew. I had friends that were into drugs it's where I got them. And so I set up a drug deal to try and save my mom. And over the course of probably four days, it went from, I'm going to save my mom to, I am going to save my own life. Um, there are police reports that show where I, I told friends that like, I think the guy was supposed to be doing the deal, but it's going to try and kill me. Mm-hmm. Um, and even after the deal was off and we tried to have a conversation, it eventually turned into, he tried to rob me and pulled a gun on me. And as a result, I took his life. Um, and this was somebody that you knew, right? This was not a stranger. Sean was my best friend at that time. Your best friend. He was the guy I trusted the most. So weird reference, but for anybody who's ever been in the, uh, the throes of drug addiction, I'll understand it. Sean was the only person I ever shared needles with. You know, it was, that was... That's deep. And it was his addiction and his friends pushing him. There's police reports that show that in the day before this happened, his friends were arguing with him, trying to get him to rob me. Which none of that is an excuse. And this is, and this is very important to me. I used to teach a victim empathy class for 20 years and, and not because I had to, but because I believed in it. Um, none of that, none of that background has been as an excuse. I shouldn't have been there. The decisions were mine. I may have been a kid, but there are other ways to deal with things. And so I, I, I don't want anybody to walk away from this podcast going, oh, well, she's she's not accountable. She blames other people. Like, no, those decisions in that moment were mine. And it is a thing that I will live with for the rest of my life. So, Jessica, I mean, it's such a, you know, it's one of those things that you, you might see on TV, but you very rarely have you know, somebody that, talking to this about it how what when this happens to you what what immediately are you thinking as far as what happens next what what is that world you turn it's very very reactive you know because first of all leading up to it you know i think everything's okay for just a second and then the next thing there's a gun pointing at you Mm -hmm. so it really is dealing with the fact that you're still alive, um, but somebody else is not. That's, that's all fight or flight at that point. You don't, yeah. you don't, you don't reason. You, and so actually I fled and even over the next few days, it was, it didn't seem real. Right. You just never seen, how can this ever seem real? Like that's what happened. Um, and 
that's what I did. And so I think it probably took me really about three years to really fully wrap my head around that day. Mm -hmm. By that time I was, I was arrested a week later and, um, certified Santiago's adults. And so you would have been what, 17 years old when you went through the 16, 16 years old, when you went through the, the whole, cause it, I, I think one of the things that I read is, is that you slept for mm -hmm. like in the juvenile center for day yeah. or, one of the things that, that was used against me was when they arrested me that I slept. Like I fell asleep in the back of the police car. Yeah. And, you know. Which is also a sense of escape, of yeah, shutting down. That's, that's the thing. It's, it's, it bothers me the way that kids are treating our justice system because there was no putting back the layers to figure out. One, I'd been, hadn't slept in a week. Like literally hadn't slept in a week. Yeah. And two, um, the, the relief was from the 16 years of my life that had mm -hmm. led up to that, not, not, uh, apathy or lack of caring. It was, right. a, it was a giving up. Yeah. You know, it's like, like, okay, it's over. And by it, I meant life and everything else. And there was a sort of resignation in that, like, finally. So from the time that you over. got arrested to the time that you are standing in front of the judge and they're saying, um, life in prison without parole, what time spans is that for about you? 18, 19 months. It's about a year and a half. In fact, I was arrested in September of 95. Um, I was sentenced in June of 97. So. What's the world around you, your family, your mom, your mm -hmm. sister and all that? What, are, what, what's the, how, how is that? I mean, I get, there's what I get to see and what I, what I, what I'm told about. Cause obviously I'm at that time I'm in jail. So I, I don't, but they're showing up to visit and we're making phone calls and we talk and there is, you know, it's always this like, you know, you're going to be okay. They're not going to convict you. We're going to help. And it's the same thing that happens for everybody. Mm -hmm. Which is funny. Cause I remember there's a very distinct uh, memory from this whole process where the jury, when they went back in to deliberate, um, I had enough sense to know. I turned around to my family and said, look, they're going to convict me. They're going to sentence me to life without parole, but it's going to be okay. Um, it's going to be okay. We'll, we'll keep fighting. My sister told me years later, if, if, if I hadn't done that, she don't think she could have dealt with it because hearing it from me and seeing that I had hope is mm. the only reason she could have hope. So you hadn't lost hope. That's, you know, one of the things I, I, mm -hmm. I like about this whole thing that we do here um, mm -hmm. is that, and I think that's why the, the people, a lot of people come to listen to this show is that the, the, the one thing that you can't take away from somebody, because that might be the only thing they have is hope. Once you lose hope, you've pretty much, you know, it's like the whole Shawshank thing. You get busy living yeah. and get busy dying. The whole thing about yeah. getting busy dying is, is you actually lost hope. You yeah. got sentenced to life in prison without parole and you had not lost hope. What do you think that was? <laughs> um, yeah, I look back on that time. I, I never lost hope. Uh, even though, I'll clarify it in a second, but I honestly think it's a little simpler than that. I tell people, like, I don't know how to give up. And yeah. it just, 
you can't choose your circumstance in life generally. I mean, you could influence it and you can make choices that have an impact, but um, most of us don't choose where we start, where the starting line is for us in life and, and, and a lot of other things that happen to us. The one choice you do have is whether or not you give up. Mm -hmm. And from the world I came from, if I had made it through all that, I wasn't. You weren't going to give up. Give up? No. There's this. Uh, yeah, there's a story from when I was 13. I, I was in rehab, um, in, inpatient rehab, and I got thrown in an isolation cell in rehab at 13. Um, and I was sitting there in a hospital gown in a metal padded room and safety glass, looking out on this little dead tree in the middle of winter. And I remember telling my sister later on that uh, I identified with that tree at that age. Like mm. all my life and branches and everything were dead. Um, but I realized even then I didn't give up because mm. I had hoped that if, if, if I can just survive till tomorrow, the sun would rise again. Oh, and the same thing when I turned 18 and I was in a slide up world. That's, you know, that's today. Let's see what tomorrow brings. So you head into prison as a very young person. Mm -hmm. uh, you're James, and mm -hmm. you walk into prison as a very young person who is thinking, no matter what, you haven't lost hope, but this is your new world, and it's going to be your world for however long you can think about it. Mm -hmm. How did you... Or what were you doing as a teenager walking into a prison <laughs> thinking, how am I going to survive this? This is something yeah. that I know you've been in jail mm. and now you're going to prison, which is a different environment. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. There's, there's kind of two phases to getting into prison. There's the R and O or the reception and orientation phase in Missouri. They used to do it. Like you had one prison where everybody went before they went off to the real prison. And that one didn't really count because it wasn't it's hard to explain, but you know, it's sleeping on bunk beds because it's overcrowded and playing basketball during the day because they don't want everybody inside the house. Like it didn't really register like prison to prison. Yeah. Uh, but then they sent me to Missouri's death row prison where I did all my time. Um, and that's when I knew I was in prison, which is about four to six weeks. I'm in there between the two. Well, this is not just any prison. You know, I went to a federal camp. You went to a maximum security prison. Yeah, the, this was... I mean, that, that's a that's a different world. Like when I went to the halfway house, that's the first time I had been around in, in a in an environment where everybody was put into one place from maximum to camp. And oh, yeah, there's a different vibe. <laughs> yeah, there's a different vibe. When I got to Potosi, uh, my R&O was I tell people my R&O was like basically three sentences. You have a lot of time. You're going to die here. Figure out what to do with your life. There's the door. Mm. And it's really, and I walked into, uh, they used to do these level assessments of how much of a risk their danger they think you are. And they assessed me as a high alpha, which like, I, oh, you are a predatory inmate. And I'm like, what? So, yeah. So they it had threw to be so in. weird to think of in your mind that they refer to you that way. Yeah, I didn't, it didn't mean anything to me, but they threw me in. That means they threw me in with all of the other predatory inmates. And so mm -hmm. I really, my first day really was literally. Whenever they open these doors, I'm standing there with my shoes laced up and, you know, it's expect somebody to rush me. And, uh, it didn't happen that day, but I was sexually assaulted three times in my first two years in prison. And the, the fourth time it was going to happen, I tried to defend myself and end up in solitary confinement for nine months for an isolation cell. So 
but yeah, that's that's whenever I got to Potosi, it was there were no security cameras, most of the guards were corrupt, and it was the most one of the most violent prisons in the state of Missouri, and that's where I did my first couple of years. Well, and you that's wanted to, and if I understand it right, Jessica, and I, I might be reading too much into this, but that was something that you had almost planned that you wanted to be in solitary to get away from this environment you were in, even though the solitary was not mm. something somebody wants to be in. No, that's for me. I was never, um, because I'd seen people who did, you know, 10, 15 years of their life and I wasn't gonna do my entire life in solitary. So yeah, people come out uh, looking different. Yeah, no, it wasn't that it was just, um, you know, I was on top of all the substance abuse and unresolved trauma and everything else. I'm an 18 year old kid on a life without parole sentence in Missouri's and the, the most dangerous prison in the state. Yeah. I had some issues. Yeah. I had some issues to work through. For me. <laughs> right, exactly. So, so I was, I was, I struggled a lot for my first probably three or four years. And then uh, actually it was during that solitary confinement that I come to realize several things about my life. Um, I was a Buddhist, I became a Buddhist. I, um, had a lot of deep introspection time and realized the person I was was not the person I wanted to be for the rest of my life. And I took vows and I took them very seriously. And uh, my life changed about the time I was 20 or 21. But those first years up to that, I was... Was a nightmare. Yep. I was not a night person, nice person and no, neither was my life. Was when do you meet uh, Sister Elaine? Hmm. During that nine months in solitary confinement, actually. Uh, there's this little tiny little nun that used to come around and about every two weeks and just kind of stick her face in the little slit of the window <laughs> and look up. And, uh, I actually met her very shortly before, like we used to do this meditation group. I started and like, she came in as a guest once and like, so I know the reference, but didn't like really meet. Um, and that's why she was stopped by my doors. Like, cause I was in that meditation class and we would talk. We would talk 20, 30 minutes every time she'd come by. And I remember just thinking, who is this crazy woman? Mm -hmm. Doesn't she know who I am? Doesn't she know what kind of person I am? Why would she spend her time? Why would she care? And I was sort of frustrated or angry by it. And why does she care about me? Well, the audacity of her compassion for crying out loud. Yes. <laughs> like, how right. dare you? Don't you know what the rest of the world thinks? And um, yeah, it's, but that became that became the image of the person I wanted to become. You know, mm. if, if I was going to spend the rest of life in my prison, it doesn't mean I was dead and doesn't mean that I couldn't become a good person. And years later, a few years later, I had a, a, a spiritual advisor actually who really helped me contextualize it all. You know, we were talking about life and about struggles and, and how you decide what is the right path in life. And he looked at me and said, you know, then in any given moment, you only ever have two choices. Just two. You can either do something good or something bad. <laughs> I like and that. he said, yeah, it was great. Well, he went on to explain that good is not defined by some weird list of, of like uh, prescribed good. Um, good means you increase happiness in the world and bad means you decrease it. So in any given moment, no matter what's going on, you can either choose to increase the happiness a little bit or decrease it. And those two things are the reason I am the way I am today. You know, and, and it, I think it's really fascinating, Jessica, because I know that that had to have been somewhat like a lifeline for you, for somebody mm -hmm. like sister Elaine that, that is, that took the time to mm -hmm. listen, understand. And then you opened up something in you that, but a lot of people say that, you know, like I, I've, I'm going to change. It's, it's, it's really, you know, uh, from this day forward, it's day mm -hmm. one, not one day. 
but you really did change. I mean, you really went from that day and began to help and be a person that, as the warden, the deputy warden said, became a superstar in an environment that you walk in as anonymous and become somebody that is changing lives. And I, I know what some of that means by being in prison. People who do good things and help people in prison, it's so valued. You know, I, I you know, like uh, attorneys that help people with their motions and, and it, maybe can actually get them out of prison. These are moments and times where, you know, you find, I, I was, I would help people with their, their goals, you know, because in business, that's what I did. But mm. it, it, it feels very fulfilling when you're in an environment that's closed in and you're giving something of value that doesn't mean money. Mm-hmm. It means that you're, I'm doing this for you because it makes me feel good. It's, it's mm. a, it's, it's, it's helping my life. Mm. But, from that moment, though, I think you took like, I mean, I know you took the steps of, you got very much into the legal law of almost mm-hmm. being um, an attorney, not licensed, but can you kind of walk us through how this <laughs> transformation went on for you? As fast as, fast as I can. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so uh, coming out of that experience, and I guess I think it was 2001, Still, 2001, I can look back and, and, and deciding that I wanted to live a better life doesn't mean that, you know, one day you wake up and all of a sudden you're a better person. Right. It's a process. It's a moment-to-moment process. And so I spend a lot of time in study of reflection and meditation and really training my brain. You know, brains are, brains are, brains are subject to their own kind of physics. They're, they're very subject to inertia. If you're inclined to be angry, then you, lo and behold, you'll get more angry unless you do something right. to change that direction. And so... I applied, I applied the force of compassion and, and of retraining myself to look at my world as, as a place. Well, I trained myself to learn that we all have one, one thing in common is we all suffer. Every yes. human being on this earth suffers and we all don't want to. And if you can see through that lens, it changes. Um, I used to write for a Buddhist publication for a while. And actually one of my sort of things I'm proud of is, I, is I'm an author in a book uh, that's got like a forward by the Dalai Lama and... Um, it's published in Chinese now, too, I think. But there's the article I wrote was on uh, my tiger. There was a guy trying to extort me. And the way I had dealt with that in the past was with force. Um, you, you know, I meet force with force. And um, this time through my training, I realized to look at him in a different way and realize that it was his suffering that caused him to make the mistakes that he was making, which was to try and uh, force me. Um, and it's hard when you're staring at a growling, roaring tiger that, uh, to, to look at them with compassion. But when you can see through that lens, you realize that force does not have to be the first choice. Mm. In fact, it should be the very last one. And, um, instead of leading with my pride and leading with force, I remove myself from the situation. Um, and ended up resolving itself. Well, and we became friends later, but that's the whole thing. It's like, you have to retrain your brain. You can't change your life if you can't change your mind. Um, and then from there, it's, it's, everything flows naturally. You just look for what's the best good I could do. So whenever I took the first job I, I could get coming out of the kitchen, because kitchen was the punishment job everybody had. To oh, do. yeah. Nobody uh, likes the kitchen. Um, I weirdly found myself as a paralegal for the folks on death row. So in Missouri at the time, uh, Missouri has an integrated death row. Like all the death row inmates are in general population. They're not segregated. Um, when the Missouri Supreme Court would issue a death warrant, 
which weirdly is a real piece of paper that is a warrant mm-hmm. for somebody to be killed. Um, they would take them out of general population and put them in protective custody, which removed their access to the law library. And so it was my job to go over to the folks who were within 30 days of, of being put to death and find out what their legal needs are and go back to the library, find them, bring them back, help them do research, um, which was the first service work I really felt like I've done in my life. I can't hard. imagine, Jessica, that you're, you're dealing with somebody that is, is looking at death. Very few people know a date of their death. And you were dealing with some... You were dealing with somebody that was dealing with that and trying to help them with your brain, mm-hmm. which is fascinating. I've known so I've known eighty three people that I like personally knew, hung out with, played handball with eighty three people executed by the state of Missouri, soon to be eighty five. Um, the next two are people that were friends. Um, so yeah, I, but that was kind of my training ground for you know, like okay, you want to live this new way of life. Um, it's not easy. Like, like suffering is easy. It's uh, gaining suffering is easy. Um, taking another path wasn't. No, wrong. I, I, I'm not. I'm gonna pretend like I was the world's best paralegal at the time, but I sure the hell tried. Um, and shortly after that, I got I got involved in hospice. I got hospice for several years and started teaching GED math. And so, just tried to look around me and say, what is the greatest suffering that I can have the most impact on reducing? And that's that's still that's my day to day. I don't. I don't wake up in the morning and go, I want to make a successful unlock labs. <laughs> I want to grow a big business. Like people, people do that. Like that's, it's, it's a thing. In the that's true. That's true. I, um, I just, absolutely. I wake up and say, what is the best thing I can do today to reduce suffering in the world? And it seems like this may be it. And the day that that seems like that's not it, then I will evaluate what I should do next. But that's the process. Over so the crazy thing, again. but the crazy thing is Jessica, is you more or less become like a savant on uh coding and, and there, there's no <laughs> that's there's, generous <laughs> but, but i'm just saying there's no internet there's no there oh. you can't do things in prison and you start reading like i saw this uh thing on youtube you, you got out the stack of books it was about mm-hmm. as tall as a you know a fifth grader that is, and yeah. you taught yourself this a technology a lot of technology i mean what were you what were you thinking? Okay. I mean, you just thought I'll just read all these books well, and oh by no. the way, I understand it all. Same principle. I mean, <laughs> I'll show you how this happens. So we go from I uh I'm doing paralegal work and um being a Buddhist, I started a Buddhist group and says I'm I'm doing these two things in hospice and stuff. And then uh for some reason the governor decided that there's no sense in spending money on G D education in maximum security prison in Missouri. You're not going home, you don't need education. Uh, and so there was this void left. I was teaching a meditation group at the time too, and, and Sister Elaine and I were co-facilitating, actually. And then, so there's this gap of education. And we showed up a meditation group one day, and we just had a conversation and said, you know, we've been doing this meditation thing for a while, um, but it seems like a lot of folks here have some experience. What if we just shut down this group and became volunteer GED instructors? Mm. Like, Let's do that. And, and we did we, we shut down the meditation group and several of us went on to, to be instructors. Um, at the same time, we were also, me and my co-founder um, were teaching uh, Impact of Crime on Victims class, uh, which was... Impact uh, of like Crime on Victims? Yeah, it was a victim okay. of the course. Well, we were the instructors. We were the facilitators. We 
created the curriculum. My co-founder did way more of the curriculum creation than I did, but we we partnered with Parents of Murdered Children, uh, and we did this, became the de facto way that folks were taught about victim empathy in the state of Missouri, uh, which gained us, uh, I mean, it was one of the most impactful uh, sure. programs that it um, but that led us to doing restorative justice work. So you have where educators were doing restorative justice work and we're teaching victim empathy. When you put those things together, we decided, well, wait a minute. What if we can start educating people that can't get to the classroom? Mm-hmm. Like, how do you do that? And one of our guys that was with us, one of the facilitators, used to be uh, in information disinformation for the Air Force. And so had some signal routing experience. And he and I sat down and had this conversation about, what about this learn by satellite model? If you've been around since the nineties, you remember learn by satellite. If not, you think I'm crazy. I have no idea what I'm talking about. <laughs> but we talked to the administration said like, look, we do restorative justice. Let us start a restorative justice television station in the prison where we can pump restorative justice information and education through the cable system. Mm-hmm. Um, they said, yes, weirdly. <laughs> and Did it surprise so, you? The, 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 I mean, or, or were they really kind of following along your, your path? at that time, Jessica, and thinking, hmm, Jessica's We were starting to get there. Yeah, We weren't there yet. We were starting to get there. Like, uh, there's all kinds of RJ stories I can tell you about how we got RJ up and going through, like, uh, we did an... uh, Anyway, they let us take and put a computer in a room and run a PowerPoint loop through the cable system that had information about restorative justice activities you get involved in. And Mm -hmm. we grew that into seven channels eventually and an entire, like, camera studio and so i got access to technology i could learn um i could get back into tech and so with that access and then again well, how many people up, is this being broadcast out to like where's it going 800 the institution so okay. uh, 500 gp though eventually we replicated the television set to four other prisons in missouri so there okay. were five in total that we were that were accessing like this this we built the package and everything else to to do it um but that brings together things like I want to educate. I'm also the person that gathers all the reentry resource guide for folks. I'm never going home, but I can help make sure you go home and mm-hmm. I have access to technology. And then, um, so I had a real drive to educate folks that, that that's the thing that really resonated with me about how I should live my life. That filled you up education, yeah. educating yeah. people. If I couldn't go home myself, the next best thing I can do is prepare others to go home. And to me, yeah. education, Education is agency. I mean, that's why I was in college at 16. It's like education is yeah. what gives you choice in life. And so all those things come together, a nice little meld. And then um, laws were changing, changing as well at the same time. And so I started to have perspective on what is the best way we can grow this process of educating people beyond just broadcasting. Um, and then in the, in the search for broadcast content one day, I, I got to see Khan Academy. Back when it was tiny. Khan Academy. Yeah, back when it was like 2,000 videos, you could download the whole thing. And um, I began to imagine, what would happen if you had a Khan Academy for prisons? Uh-huh. Like, what would that what would that be? So um, you take that factor. And then I also wanted people to get credentialing. Mm-hmm. And then I'd seen on PBS this thing called LaunchCode, which is a nonprofit organization in St. Louis that does... Technology training for non-traditional tech, uh, people from non-traditionally tech. Yeah, they earn apprenticeships. And, right. Uh, so I, uh, my friend that was sending me all my information to help me learn, I had him reach out like, hey, wild thing. I need to learn to code. want to learn to code. I had taught myself enough coding to build a prototype, like a really ugly prototype that I'd shown to administration. 
um, about like, hey, this is Khan Academy for prisons. And they're like, great, let's do that. <laughs> okay. I can't do that. I can do this. And so that was part of the reach out. And uh, my co-founder is the one that responded to that email. Uh, this is Jesus, eight years ago now, nine years ago. We worked together to start a coding program. She, we worked with administration. They provided the, the coding curriculum. I offlined it. I read a lot of books. <laughs> a lot you read of a books. lot of books. I've, if if yeah. you guys want to look on YouTube, there's a two or two or three minute thing where uh, Jessica is. They're kind of following her around in prison, but she gets out all these books. And I'm not exaggerating. They're you know three or four feet high. They're real. Yeah. They're huge and they're thick. It's not yeah. like it's not like a hundred books. There's like these huge books that have like yeah, they're five, about a thousand pages a piece. <laughs> exactly. Um, but it was just, it was necessity. Like I wanted to do this good thing and to do this good thing, I had to do this other thing, which is read all these books. And so it wasn't, I didn't sit down going, I'm going to be a programmer because I'm going to be the best programmer in the world. It's like, no, if I'm going to run a television station, if I want to be a system engineer for a television station and I'm going to build education software, I got to learn how to do it. And so mm -hmm. it really was just day in, day out. You get up and you say, well, this is the thing I have to do if I'm going to do that, that good thing. So, so Jessica, when you do this and you've reached out launch code for, for those who don't know, uh, McKelvey and, and Jack Dorsey who, mm -hmm. um, created Twitter, the, they came back in and, and I think one of the reasons why it was is because they're from St. Louis and they went to California because they didn't think they had the brain trust in St. Louis to do what they were wanting to do. So they, they wanted to come back and create that. And mm -hmm. so, with this connection to launch code, when did you realize that you were going to have unlocked labs and, and unlocked lab was going to be working with people from the outside to the inside, to creating the inside, to work on the outside. So it's a really interesting way to put it that you're also right. <laughs> um, see, that's just it. There's, there's this like, uh, this is a grand plan. It's like, no, it's not. It's what happens whenever you wake up every day and ask the two questions. Mm -hmm. um, so it started with, well, let's get this coding programs because I need to learn to code. Oh, wait a minute, we can teach other people to code. And we started doing that. And that's the first thing we did. And then the pandemic happened, right? As we launched our, we did our first pilot and then the pandemic happened. So we got shut down and I told like 2019. Um, and then when we came back up. Was it, the, I was wanting to know too, Jessica, was it easy to, because you've been doing other, like you were educating, was it easy to transition over to, hey, what do you think about coding? everybody <laughs> um i had a track record i had a 20-year track record by then yeah right like i was and honestly i had been <laughs> i had also been through my first uh, civil rights lawsuit at then too so there was kind of a combination of like respect understanding and the people who would normally want to sabotage didn't want to necessarily right. tangle with me which is weird i don't like saying that but it's there's some truth to it uh, so basically, I had the respect of the people who understood I was trying to do something right. So when I proposed it, it we had some conversations. But at the end of the day, it's like, okay, you can try this. And so I, I taught myself the curriculum, and then I, I taught a whole other class of people the curriculum. They became my first instructors um, when we come out of pandemic. Uh, and then there were conversations about for-profit tablet providers and education systems in the space and how terrible they were. You know, there's a Washington University in St. Louis was running a prison education program and they were compelled to use this this tablet uh, learning platform. They just hate it. And just so happens my co-founder and one of the professors from Washington got in a conversation. about. And interestingly enough, I've had a couple of those people who've graduated from that program. Um, the, 
was Jim Brock and some other people that actually nice. were in that program and went through it and graduated in the ceremony. Nice. But yeah. It's, it's, so you worked on that, though. Mm-hmm. Yeah. With a, so we it, uh, it, oh, go no, go ahead. I, and I, I was the people that became a part of that was the Mellon Foundation. You're, you're with WashU. I mean, this this is gigantic mm-hmm. stuff going on inside the prison. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, to, to kind of get there, the relevant detail and kind of get there a little quicker was um, I ended up taking that original platform and using it to build the platform that we teach coding with because we didn't have internet access. And then so the conversation was, well, what if we can take this thing that was built on the inside um, by Jess and her, you know, other other instructors and grow it out to do college courses? And that became a conversation between the DOC and Mellon Foundation and WashU. And lo and behold, uh, probably five months before I, I it was right around the time I was going up for my parole hearing, actually, um, we got the Mellon grant. Um, and then from the time I had my parole hearing to the time I went home, it was like six months. And Mellon is like one of the, I think, I mean, probably the biggest, $8.1 billion. And oh, they are. It's just a gigantic good. foundation. The, uh, they're very good people over there, though. I've, I've had chances to sit down in their offices now and, and like, talk to folks. But they, they were our first supporter. And so before I came home, we actually we had an inside dev shop. We had we, you know, we were we were teaching coding. It had been expanded. And when I walked out the door, I walked into this project of, like, let's take these folks who are justice impacted and, and going through our coding program and put them to work building this education technology for, like, an open source public infrastructure so everybody has that access and yeah so that's that's really it's so it was cool organic though it's, it's so organic. cool jessica and, and the people that are doing this are justice impacted help i mean it, the, the whole thing you know connects dots and then these people are able to go out and, and create jobs or get jobs that are meaningful that it's almost you know that's one of the things that you and i were talking about the other day the statistics are just crazy bad for getting into re-entry and getting jobs with this type of job being a uh, so they can write code. That's a, that's something that you can almost break through the barrier, and and people will take that chance on you. I don't want to nope. skirt. I don't want to skirt over this whole thing of you going to the Missouri Supreme Court. By the way, that that was a huge thing, mm-hmm. and changed a lot of people's lives because you were the pioneer of that. Mm. Um, Federal court. <laughs> what what's your recollection of that time period and how you were? working through that um you were 20 years into prison is that correct yeah i was in 2015 is when i first started my journey so there's a whole like internal process i'll skip over for now as well but uh 2015 is when i first started the transition process which i don't want to let this slip by because you know for those of you who are not from missouri may not realize like missouri is going through a really hard time with trans rights right now and there's this tendency to say all people in authority of Missouri are terrible. Um, but remember, all these things that we built would involve, you know, DOC officials and even government officials um, were built as I was going through my transition process. I filed for a na- change of name in 2015 mm-hmm. and shortly thereafter was referred for hormones and was denied and then went to federal court. Uh, so it wasn't even Missouri Supreme Court case. We went to, we went to the federal district court uh, and fought the state of a right for me to access hormones. And you know, by 2018, which is right as we're really trying to lean into doing all this stuff with the DOC, um, I started taking hormones 
um, and shortly thereafter, I sued the state of Kansas. Uh, we changed my all of my birth certificate and everything else. So I'm literally in Missouri's maximum security male prison as legally Jessica James Hicklin, female, taking hormones. Um, that was an adventure. <laughs> I bet um, it was an adventure. And, I, and I, what also was the environment with you in a men's prison and your transitioning? It's completely atypical. I will say that before I explain this because um, the normal experience is terrible. Um, and I still advocate for housing by, by acquired gender. But for me, because I had 20 years of not only working with administration, but also working with the people who live next, next to me, like you're trying to go home. I'm trying to help you. Fight mm -hmm. them They're trying to help them. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, I lived in the honor dorm in general population for my last 20 years in prison and not a thing changed when I transitioned. Um, I was, you know, I was as respected if some ways even more, in fact, mm -hmm. it's, it's a weird way to reference. Well, this, the reason I, I asked that, the reason I asked that Jessica is because there's a lot of different people when, you know, you enter the, in the world of prison. Um, mm -hmm. I met some incredible people that I would have never have met. And I think that the whole thing, you know, because the transgender uh, topic is is on the top of of everything that's going on right now in in, in the world that we live in. Mm -hmm. And I think that the one of the experiences I came out with is coming going into prison was is that don't always try to understand the story. Don't listen to what somebody said. And I think that that goes to the transgender issue too. Is that if everybody was communicating and understanding each other of how we get to where everybody wants to get to, then yeah. you don't have these sides so divided as much as just the yeah. communication of understanding. And I, and I think in prison, the reason I ask you that question is in prison, um, you had the ability to, because you were confined to be Jessica and to be who you are and you were respected. And you mm -hmm. were a part of the general population that people, just like everybody else, you were just everybody else. Mm -hmm. Somehow, some way, we've got to get to that point yes. in, in, in our society. And I don't know exactly what the answer is to that, but you know, it's almost people, like you only need to confine everybody to be able to talk to each other. Until you figure this out. No, uh, I tell people that whenever it finally becomes irrelevant is when it will, when it will be there. Meaning... I don't show up in spaces going, hi, I'm a transgender CTO of a, of a nonprofit. Like why? If it's not, it's what I, how I live my life is, is, is not relevant to how you live your life other than how can we work together? And so, and, and that's really like on the day to day and Potosi while I'm doing the things I'm doing and working with people, it wasn't like we start off the conversation like, Oh, hi, I'm, I'm trans. Now let's have a conversation. It just wasn't relevant to the people living right. around me. It's like you're doing you, and you know you call me however you want to, and you put on the clothes you want to. What the hell is that got to do with us talking about the, this case law over here? And when we get to that point where we start letting each other live our own lives and realize it doesn't really affect us, yeah, then we'll be there, and not before then. Yeah, and it'll it's it's a long path, but I think the more <laughs> and then having conversations like this, I think helps too, is that um, just to understand, you know, to to hear a story, but. When you, when you went all the way up to the Missouri Supreme Court mm -hmm. and you won, mm -hmm. it had to feel fantastic, mm. right? You're in prison and you went all the way up to the Missouri Supreme Court. Um, 
there, yeah, I'm trying to think. There's many anecdotes I can talk about this one, but um, obviously it was deeply personal for me. Um, and I remember being on the phone with my attorney when we got the, the order back in. She was looking on Pacer, and uh, we were. She was like, put in an amazing amount of time. The, the Lambda Legal folks like lived and breathed this fight, and she like refreshes like, wait a minute, wait a minute. And then started reading this to me over the phone on a Friday at like four thirty in the afternoon. Uh, I lost it. I did. I just lost it, and I was so elated, but at the same time, just this can't be real. And, and but yeah, there was. It goes back to a theme you started on earlier: hope, mm-hmm. right? Um, and it restored my faith and my and hope. Mm-hmm. Like if you just hope for a better tomorrow and you work towards that better tomorrow, that better tomorrow will show up. Yep. And that really was, that was one of those moments for me where it restored, not just the hope for that situation, but for life in general. Oh yeah. And I mean, with your hope, you, 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 you infuse it with action. And, and I think that's one of the things that people, it's not easy. And you go through, everybody goes through, like you said, everybody suffers, but the, the getting yeah. back up thing is, is the, the action mm-hmm. part that you don't, you know, having your hope is the, the key, but mm-hmm. being able to take action. Cause you know, you had three or four years there that you weren't, mm-hmm. didn't know how to deal with what had happened to you. And then you woke up mm-hmm. and you, you became who you are now, Jessica. And that, um, I just think it's, I think it's amazing. And um, so you, you also had a law change that would give you the opportunity to have a parole hearing. Am I correct about that? I was, Part of litigation, I'm, that, that's <laughs> there's some clarifiers there, but yeah, okay. I, was, I was in Missouri. The case that determines how that parole hearing goes is my case, Hicklin versus okay. Schmidt. So, but I, uh, for anybody who knows the juvenile life without parole argument, I'll get this very short. Uh, it started with Christopher Simmons or Roper Simmons, which was the United States deciding whether or not we should kill juveniles anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, th- that case happened in 2005. Okay. Um, I remember that case because Christopher Smith was my celly when that case happened. I remember when they took him, they got him up one morning and read him his death warrant in front of the cell and took him off to the place where I would go to paralegal work. Yeah. And two weeks later was Roper versus Simmons. Um, during that whole time period, I used to read his case law and then like we would, and that's what I did. Like, like, mm-hmm. you know, what can we do to help your attorneys? Which, you know, had really good attorneys at the time. And from there it went on to, you know, the work of Brian Stevenson who did amazing work for us and, uh, Graham versus Florida, Miller versus Alabama. And so there was federal law going on, and I was definitely part of trying to be. I've litigated in the U.S. Supreme Court, I think, eight times at this point. Um, so I was always filing, but I didn't get the Montgomery versus Alabama ruling. That was another state and this U.S. Supreme Court, but um, it was through those arguments and everything else that I got Hickman versus Smith, Missouri Supreme Court, which, yes, contributed to. Also, I will say, and MacArthur Justice Center is the one that won in Missouri first. Um, they won at the federal level to get us those parole hearings, and then it was overturned recently. And now, my well, case and is. and Jessica, you had some incredible people that spoke on your behalf at that yeah. parole hearing, which um, I'm sure had a gigantic impact, and it probably made you feel incredible that those people did that for you. My parole hearing was surreal. I'll be honest. Um, there was the people who spoke on my side, Sister Lane being one of them, mm-hmm. um, my co-founder being another at this point, and 
uh, ACLU attorney being the third, but the surreal part was the exchange, the conversation, because there was three parole board members and three of us on my side. And to sum up one of the statements one of made says, you know, this guy that been, he was on the panel, been quiet the whole hearing, um, pipes up at the end and says, you know, this is how people should spend their time. How you spent your time is how people should spend their time. Good luck. Mm. And two weeks later, I found out I was going home. Um, which is That's kind of what just, we're trying to do. I, you just brushed over that. <laughs> <laughs> you, <laughs> two weeks later, I was going home. I was supposed to be in prison the rest of my life without parole. And then two weeks later, I'm going home. <laughs> Where is that? Oh, it was, there was, those, yeah, it was, it was very stressful because we did, we fought down to the, oh, I pissed off quite a few attorney generals, assistant attorney generals in the litigation process to get to that point. But, you know. Yeah. You fought. And you fought. going back to the hope part, you know, you yeah. never gave up. And that's. You, you can't. That's why you're sitting here is you never gave up and you're here. Let's go to, let's go to talk about what you're doing now, Jessica, because mm-hmm. it's not like you just came home and tried to figure things out, which is, is, uh, by the way, statistically, one of the things is the toughest thing is to get out and try to find a job. You actually mm-hmm. were working on locked labs on the inside, transitioned mm-hmm. yourself to the outside into reentry and became the co-founder, which you already were, and the CTO for Unlocked Labs. Tell tell us what you are, what your life's like today. Mm-hmm. After 26 years, by the way, I just don't want to roll over the fact, 26 years, you get out, and there's this great story in The Guardian, you know, you're going to get, you know, where do we go? And you were like, let's get something to eat and chaos for the rest of the day or whatever it was. But <laughs> I, you know, the, the, the idea that you were in for 26 years and mm-hmm. your mom becomes just the greatest advocate mom for you. And she's turned her whole life around your sister and everybody's, you know, mm-hmm. you, here you are. It's, it's, and, and you, you're this respected superstar leaving this as it's yeah, like, yeah. I wanted to read that in the beginning, this anonymous kid that comes in and you walk out as creating this internal change within the prison system, not just that mm-hmm. prison, the prison system. And then you're out. <laughs> Boom. You know, wow. 26 years, you are out. What, what's Jessica, what's going on in your head? Actually, it's funny. I just now kind of looked down at the clock on my computer and realized, oh, that's <laughs> two years ago because it was Martin Luther King, uh, a weekend yes. that I got out of prison. Um, so yeah, I, which is I, weird I, by the way, I went into prison on January 14th and you got out on January 14th. Yes, I did. Dots to connect. Wow. Um, <laughs> Uh, so I'm obviously being reflective right now. Like, oh, geez, that was two years ago. But uh, the chaos that I was planned was I had a whole spreadsheet of things I needed to get done. Like, get to the DMV, get my ID, get my driver's list. Yeah, I need to, like, I had a list. And actually, my, my uh, I had good family there and a good friend. And the friend said, how about we stop for breakfast? <laughs> Sounds That's like a idea. good idea. So, so about 30 minutes out of prison, we stop and we go into Panera. Um. And that's when I really had the sense of, oh, I'm in a prison because I walk into a Panera and I look and I have options of what I want to eat for breakfast. Yeah. It's not a thing in prison. Not so much. Nope. I was so, I've only had three cents, three times this had a sense of being overwhelmed since I've been home. And that was the first one. I looked around and I'm like, I, I, I was frozen. It's kind of sensory uh, overload. Yeah, it's like interesting options and stuff. I'm like, oh, yeah, I have cheese, egg, biscuit. Yep, that's great. <laughs> and then they hand me this little, the puck, the vibrating puck. Yeah. 
ticket. And I, I look at my friends. I'm like, is this like a coffee holder? This is a, <laughs> where you put the coffee mug? What is this? <laughs> so, you know, take it back to the table, the vibrator. So, so there was that. Um, and so there was this sense of like, God, this is this is like probably like the Wright brothers when they first got off yeah. the ground. Like, oh God, it's flying, it's working. Um, and then I'm sitting <laughs> at the table, and my sister goes to the bathroom, and her phone rings, and I look down, and I see it's my brother-in-law. So I pick. Up, I remember I went in 1995. There were no smartphones. I no. reach over, pick up the phone, answer the phone, start talking to my brother-in-law, um, because I had had no matter how much crap I got for this, I had a phone, a cell phone manual that I had a chance to read before I come home, so I knew how to answer the thing. Sure. And so when I can pick up the phone and start talking to my brother-in-law and when we're done hanging up and I can't her phone back, I'm like, okay, I got this. Like, we're going to be okay. We'll <laughs> be all right. Moment. Yeah, we'll be all right. And then I've just been doing one day at a time ever since. I, I came home on a Friday, walked into work on Tuesday morning. As the, actually, that was really my first official day as, a, uh, as an employee of Unlock Labs and WashU at the time. It was joint because of the grant. So I actually was a programmer and uh, programmer analyst one for... Washington University and the C2 of Unlock Labs the day I walked out the door, which is still surreal to this day. It's crazy. And tell us, like, what what's your thoughts on Unlocked Labs? What's what's your what in your your uh, brilliant brain that you have? What's going oh, on in your universe. immediate um, future? Well, at the time, it was just like we had this idea, like we wanted to build education technology, but. And like a really rudimentary prototype built by people I haven't seen the internet in 20 years, 25 years. Um, there's three, four, there's four employees I've Unlocked Labs at the time. And it was just like, we're going to do this great thing. How the hell are we going to do this great thing? And so, you know, it's, it's the whole first year was just, I mean, I've been through so many accelerated programs, executive coaching, fundraising, learning to do the things, hiring teams, developing the software myself in the early days. Um, it's just been growing it. I mean, we're 13, 14 people now. Um, and how many people are part of it? Like that are inside the prisons that are you're well, right, right reaching now through roughly 5,000 people use our education system. We've graduated. A lot. I think a little yeah. over 200 people have been through our coding program now. Um, so we have like both those things that we're doing yeah. now we employ. So 14 people are working for Unlock Labs now. 70% of them are just as impacted. Like they went through a coding program, came out yeah. with us now. And so, yeah, we are in a, in two years, we're in an amazing space and yeah. it, the future looks amazing, but yeah, yeah. it was day at a time. And, kind and, of and I think the other thing too, Jessica, that, that, you know, we're, we were talking about it, the Adobo platform that's in the state prisons, not in the federal prisons. Mm -hmm. I think mm -hmm. we're up to this, this, program goes into 300 prisons of the people who have the tablets. Um, but I think something I, I got personal experience with you on. So you and I were having a call and we're working on something. I hope it's going to be an incredible thing that we're going to mm -hmm. put an umbrella over the United States and connect all the people that are doing good things for reentry to, to be able to access. So it was, I could see how your brain worked when we got, we're on this, this, uh, zoom call because you just you just immediately i said okay this needs to be done we're going to do this and then you put a google doc together and you said okay the, the, all of a sudden i had a homework assignment and your the, your action is um i can see how people are drawn to that because mm. a lot of people talk about stuff because mm. it's easy you know you just talk about yeah. hey what about this and but what if we did the one same? thing that i noticed about you 
you you talked for a little bit and then you were all of a sudden you're filling out a google doc <laughs> and, we're, and we're putting this in action and i think that being in a in the environment you were in in prison had to inspire mm -hmm. people that we're just not going to talk about it we're going to do it and do it. and by doing it that feels different it's you're yeah. taking a step and it may be the wrong one but at least you're taking one and you you're know it's the wrong one. one after that yeah it's uh you know, I was home 13 days when I went on my first fundraiser trip. Um, that's that's car, incredible. Drove to New York City because I didn't have my ID figured out yet with uh, my co-founder. And by like 17, 18 days out of prison, I was standing in the J.M. Kaplan buildings in the in the, in the grape room for, uh, for those who have ever been there. Looking down on the streets of New York going. Wow. Taking a step. Yeah. You just taking keep a taking step. steps. Because, and when I reached out to you, you were over in Europe, somewhere. Yeah, yeah, somewhere, somewhere in Switzerland, <laughs> I think. So, yeah, it's been an interesting two years, but it just you wake up every morning, ask yourself what's the greatest good you can do today, and do it. That's well. There's no other, I was, no was going to ask you what your biggest takeaway is through this yeah. whole experience. You might have just said it. Yeah, it really is. That's you know, I'm, I don't always get it right. I don't know everything. I'm certainly going to screw up, but I'm going to wake up again tomorrow and say, what is the best good I could do in the world today? And I'm going to do it. And, it, and it just happens to affect people's lives in a, in a positive way. And that's, you know, I, I just, I think, I hope so many different people listen to this show on this episode because there were so many times, Jessica, I mean, you can almost point to it when you read that, uh, what is it? The Guardian story. Uh, mm -hmm. the, the, there's so many points in that. I just kept reading and thinking, oh, well, this isn't going to work out. <laughs> oh, no, this is this is not going to happen. Uh, and then you just terribly. kept getting through it. And then all of a sudden you're out and you're mm -hmm. this unlocked labs person that's changing people's lives from the inside out to the outside. So it's, it's just uh, I love it. Love what you're doing. Love, love. I appreciate that. Uh, you're a voice and a strong voice for what you believe in, and and uh, we need more of that. We need more Jessica Hicklins. Well, I think I would say if I had one good takeaway that I really hope people understand is that I I didn't do it alone. You know, that's the and to your point about you know us coming across aisles or whatever those aisles may be. Like, if we are going to truly end suffering in this world, we got to pull that crap away and just work together. So. That's really the secret of my success is I have good intent and I take good action, but I do it with good people. Mm, that's powerful. That's a good way to end it. If people want to get a hold of you, Jessica, they can go to the website, uh, Unlocked Labs, right? Unlocked, mm -hmm. it's, it's .org. .org. You can reach out to me by email if you want as well. Uh, it's just Jessica at UnlockedLabs.org. And I'll put that in the show notes too. Mm-hmm. And uh, for anybody who's wanting to read a book out there, I still got one going. I still got it. It's still on Amazon. Uh, you can go to Barnes & Noble, Nightmare Success. It's easy to get to. You can go just tap on that button. Uh, I love the reviews, everybody, uh, that puts the, the show on steroids. And, and we're getting a lot of reviews here lately, so it's, it's fantastic. And um, I really appreciate Jessica, you being on today and sharing your story. People who want to go to my website, SprintCassie.com. Oh, well, who's that? That's my co-host, Rosie. Rosie? What a great... Schnauzer? 
For those on YouTube, you'll be able to see Rosie. Schnauzer mix. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. I grew up with a Schnauzer for 15 years when I was from a baby many, to many a freshman in high school. Mm-hmm. Uh, BrentCassie.com. Go to that if you want to find out more about me. It's with a T-Y, not a D-Y. And as I used to say when uh, I was writing my emails back and forth from Leavenworth, stay strong. I'll do the same. Jessica Hicklin, you are a superstar. Thanks for being on here today. Nightmare success in and out.